think of us or not even what we think of ourselves. Our self-worth is based on what God says. And our identity is in Christ. And if your identity is in Christ as a Christian, then, then you belong. And it's up to us not to trust in our feelings, but to have faith and belief and trust in the revealed promises of God. And we're going to talk about that some this morning, so I invite, your Bible, uh, invite you to open your Bible with me. Invite your Bible to open itself if it could. <laughs> but wow, that'd be something, wouldn't it? But open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll be in verses 27 through 31 this morning. Our message is entitled, Cross and Effect. I was helping Kylie with her history homework this week, and part of that was dealing with the idea of cause and effect, specifically looking at some of the political decisions that were made leading up to the Revolutionary War. What were some things that caused the effect of the War for Independence? Now, of course, the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence, was a, a very important, uh, significant world history event. Uh, but the most significant event in human history was the ministry of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And we have been looking at, over the last several months, this series through the book of Romans entitled Right with God. And we have learned of the universal problem of sin, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't matter Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter your, your race, your ethnicity, uh, your geopolitical background, economic background, none of that matters. We are all sinners. We've all sinned against a holy God. But we've also saw the last time that we were together the sacrifice that Christ has made for our sin. And as we look at that, what, what is our response? And over the next uh, few verses and few chapters, Paul speaks specifically about that. Our response is to humbly trust in the saving promises of God in Christ Jesus. Not trusting in ourselves, our own worth, our own abilities, our own efforts. We dare not trust in ourselves. We trust wholly in the saving work of Jesus Christ that God has promised and that God has indeed delivered for us. Let me invite you to open your Bible and stand before me as we read this morning, as uh, we turn our attention to the Holy Word of God, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 27. And here Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you today for your grace, your mercy. Thank you, God, for your revealed word in which you have spoken to us truth, in which we are called then to submit to, we are called to trust in. And Father, we just pray that this morning as we reflect on the cross and we reflect on the effects of the cross, our response to the cross, we pray, God, that we indeed would give you the glory you rightfully deserve. 
It is through the blood of Jesus that we are made right with you. It is through the sacrifice of Christ that we have peace with you. And so, Lord, we pray today as we look at the Scripture, if there is any within the sound of my voice that has never come to saving faith in Christ Jesus, who has never surrendered and trusted in the work of Christ, we pray this moment would be the time of salvation. Thank you, God, for all of your mercy, all of your grace. Thank you for your word that we surrender to at this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. After several weeks going through the first few chapters of the book of Romans, we have seen a lot of bad news. Speaking about our sin, our condition, the total depravity of humanity. And then the last time we were together, right before Christmas, we finally saw good news once again in the book of Romans, specifically as we came to the cross, as Paul has shown us what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then we think about now, what is our response? What is our reaction to this redemption that God has brought to us in Jesus Christ? And because of the cross, then the first thing that we encounter in our text today is that human pride is excluded. Human pride is excluded. It's the first obvious conclusion. If God has done this for us, then we cannot claim any pride in the work of the cross. If Jesus paid it all, we do not contribute anything else to what Jesus has done. Human pride is excluded, and because of that, the Lord gets the glory. In verse 27, Paul speaks about the glory of God. He already talked about in the book of Romans how God's glory has been stolen from humanity and given to other things. Chapter 1, verse 21 through 23 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Paul here was speaking about the Gentiles, those who were outside of the covenant of Israel. But then also he acknowledges that Israel's heart in verse 5 of chapter 2 was stubborn and unrepentant, and they were storing up wrath in the day of wrath and the coming judgment of God. Then back in chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God of God that mankind has stolen has taken from God what rightfully belongs to him his glory and giving it to another and because of that mankind has then also lost the glory that God has in store for us Paul says in verse 27 where then is boasting the word then shows us grammatically that this verse is tied into what he has just talked about because of the cross, because of the redemption that has been given to us by the grace of God, because of the work of Jesus and, and how His shed blood brings about propitiation of sin, where then, in light of that truth, is boasting. Paul's talking about improper boasting. Scripture says that it is appropriate to boast sometimes in some ways as long as the object of our boasting is God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts 
boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So boasting in the Lord, in His being and in His works, is, is proper, it's appropriate, it's right. God deserves the glory. But what is improper here that Paul is referring to is self-righteousness. We cannot boast in our ability to keep the law. We cannot boast in our goodness that somehow that we are holy enough to earn God's favor. That boasting, Paul says, is excluded because the Lord gets the glory, not us. But also human pride is excluded because the Lord gives the grace. He gives the grace for salvation. It's by faith and not by works. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works, of human efforts, of our abilities, of our somehow morality? No, but by the law of faith, of believing, more than just intellectual believing, of just saying, well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for sin and He rose again. Yes, that's true. We must believe that. But the thing is, even, even the devil believes that. The demons believe there is one God and they shudder. It's a matter of what we believe does that then impact and affect our hearts. Do we then submit and surrender, and surrender to this truth? Do we trust in what we believe in? That's saving faith. That's saying what Jesus did. He did it for me. And apart from that, I cannot be saved. Lord, I need the work of Jesus applied to me. I ask that you would do that for me, God. That's saving faith. Paul says it's not works, not efforts in our goodness, not our trying to keep the law that saves us. In fact, Paul has told us already the inability of humanity to keep the law. That's what the first uh, couple of chapters of Romans is all about. We are unable to perfectly keep the law of God. So we must need the grace of God. Verse 24 back there says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It's faith. It's trusting in receiving this gift that God gives to us. The Lord gives the grace and we cannot be good enough to earn salvation. I heard uh, just this week the old song, Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so what? I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. Oh, i got news for that fella. If that's what he's hoping in, he'll never see his baby again. If the Lord has taken her, uh, she's gone to heaven, so I've got to trust in the cross of Jesus Christ. I've got, to, I've got to throw myself on the mercy of God and trust that what Jesus did was enough for me so I can see my baby again when I leave this world. It's by faith in Christ and not by our own works. The Lord gives the grace. The Lord grants the gospel. The saving message that we proclaim and we must proclaim and we should proclaim. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The good news. Why? Because it is the, it's the power of God for salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
It is the message of God that is needed to save the soul because it's through that message, through that gospel, that the power of the Holy Spirit then moves and communicates. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in verse 28, for because we maintain Paul, the apostle, the apostles of Jesus Christ, They maintained, they reckoned, they trusted, they believed in, they credited this, that a man is justified, made right with God by faith apart from the works of the law. That a man is made right with God not by what he does, but what God has done and trusting in what God has done. That's the gospel Paul says we maintain that. It's what we believe. It's what we preach. It's what we continue believing and preaching. The church today must maintain that same gospel. To move away from that, to say somehow that a person can be saved apart from faith in Christ is not to maintain what Paul maintains. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith it's faith alone but saving faith that brings works with it and we'll talk about that here in just a minute it's not the works that save us it is faith it's the doctrine that Paul and the apostles preached if you've gone to school long enough you're familiar with the term plagiarism that means to copy somebody else's work and, and try to pass it off as your own it means taking credit for something that somebody else did I even read here recently how a prominent New Testament scholar was found guilty of plagiarism in some of his commentaries. But for a person to say somehow they are saved because they are good enough or they, they, they're moral enough and they, they try hard, for a person to say somehow that their efforts can bring them into the kingdom of God, they are plagiarizing the work of Jesus. They are nullifying the work of the cross. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Are you willing to say the cross was in vain? Are you willing to say that Jesus died to save people, but people can be saved apart from what Christ did? Are you willing to say the cross was useless, that we can be saved without it? No, we would dare not say that. But to say you could somehow be good enough for God is to nullify the grace of God and make the cross in vain. We need the cross. We must trust in what God has done. Therefore, human pride is excluded. But also, human prejudice is eliminated. Human prejudice is eliminated. Paul has shown us in the first few chapters that very thing. Jews and Gentiles alike doesn't matter your ethnicity. We are united in our sinful condition. We're also united by the hope of salvation. What Christ has done was not only for the Jew, it was also for the Gentiles, for all of humanity, all of the races, all of the nations. Because, first of all, there is only one sovereign. There's only one sovereign. Paul reminds his audience of this Old Testament creed in Hebrew called the Shema. Found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It means there's only one God. 
the fundamental tenet to, to uh, Judaism and Christianity. There's only one God. There was a belief then in Paul's day and in the days of Moses, and even still today there's this belief called polytheism, that there's more than one God. But God communicates and says, I am one. There's only one God. There's no other gods before me. No other gods in my presence. I am the God of all gods. I am the only God. So Paul says here in verse 29, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. There's only one God. There's only one Sovereign. Even the, the, the message of the Old Testament says that Jews and Gentiles, there's only one God. Genesis chapter 12, God's promise to Abram that through Abram all the families of the earth would be blessed. And as God repeated those promises, that covenant to Abram throughout his life, God said it's through your seed that all the nations will be blessed. All of the nations on earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And Paul says that seed of Abraham is Christ. It is through Christ that all of the nations of the earth, even the Gentiles, are brought into one body because there is one Savior. There is one Sovereign and there is one Savior. Exodus 19, Paul ta or, or Moses talks about how Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. Israel was to mediate and bring the, the law and the message of God, the promise of God to the nations. And then in, in Isaiah 66, we see the nations then coming to God and God making even the Gentiles priests to Him. So yes, there is one sovereign and there is one Savior. Look at verse 30. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. God is the one who does this. God is the one who justifies the circumcised, the Jews, and God is the one who justifies the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. There's one sovereign, there's one God over all of humanity, there's only one Savior for all humanity. It is God through His work in Christ. One God one Savior for all humanity because there is only one satisfaction for sin. Verse 30 says, Since indeed God who will justify the uncircumcised and the, uh, the circumcised and the uncircumcised by faith. How does God bring about this salvation? It is through faith. How is the wrath of God satisfied? It's by the cross. It's the work of Jesus. It's the propitiation that we looked at last time. It is this satisfaction of sin that is brought about through the death of Christ on the cross and the blood of Jesus. That's the only way anybody will ever be saved. There was one Savior and He brought about this work of salvation by His satisfaction on the cross. The, the laws and the just demands of God were satisfied in the death of Christ. It's the only payment that's sufficient. It's the only payment needed. Jesus said, it is finished. It's paid in full. So human prejudice is eliminated. It doesn't matter 
what your race or your ethnicity is. We all have sinned. We all deserve hell. But we all have access to God through the gospel. That satisfaction that Christ made on the cross, that atonement was for anyone of any race or ethnicity because there is only one God and there's only one Savior. And we all come to Him by faith. Faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. You know, there's been much concern in the news recently about this proposed wall between the U.S. and Mexico and even found out that that was part of the discussion in Sunday school in, uh, in the women's class today. And there is a lot of debate about this. There is a lot of strong feelings one way or the other. But my question is this. Where are the strong feelings about the wall that separates God and humanity? We're all worked up and we're all stirred up and we're all arguing about and debating. We're pouring so much human effort into fighting whether or not we want this wall between two countries. Where is the concern over the lost? I get on my Facebook and all I read about is Trump and this wall. Forward, against it, forward, against it. Where is the concern over the lost? The wall that separates humanity from God regardless of the race, regardless of the gender, regardless of whatever beliefs you have, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let's worry more about that wall, the wall that really matters in the end. Whatever feelings you have on this political issue, and it's an important issue, I don't downplay that. But all this fighting over this wall and no or little concern over the salvation of the human soul. Human prejudice is eliminated because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Finally, heavenly promises are established. Through what Jesus did on the cross, heavenly promises are established and God's Word is forever trustworthy. Everything that God has promised has been brought about or will be brought about through specifically Jesus. Because first of all, the law foreshadowed Christ. Paul here anticipates the argument that some would have. As Paul says over and over again, we're saved by faith and not by works. It's an act of God's grace. It's not human efforts, human merits. It's not by our morality or our, our sincerity that we're made right with God. It is only by the work of Christ on the cross. And then he anticipates this argument that might come. He says, do we then, again the word then shows the grammatical connection, do we then because of what we maintain, man's justified by faith and not by the law, do we then nullify the law through faith? It's a valid question. Is the law now useless? Has, has the law been replaced by faith? And why does that matter? It matters because the law foreshadowed Christ. We read in the Old Testament, the cross is prophesied over and over again. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They try to cover up their own shame with fig leaves. 
God says it's not enough. And He provides for them skins, animal skins, to cover their shame. Where those skins come from? An innocent sacrifice. Something gave its life to cover the shame of Adam and Eve's sin. Is that not a foreshadowing of the cross? Think about in the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb that was slain and its blood was applied to the doorposts. Think about at the top and then the sides. Is that not a vivid depiction of the cross? And the, the whole sacrificial system, the lambs and the bulls and, and everything that was required to be sacrificed and, and the, its blood was to be shed, that whole system was a reminder that a substitute was required to atone for the sins of God's people that all foreshadows Christ. And to somehow say that the law was nullified means that the law was not needed. But indeed, the whole law prophesied and foreshadowed the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. The law foreshadowed Christ. But the law is also fundamental to Christians. Paul says in verse 31, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Some translations, God forbid. It's may genito in Greek. It's a very strong phrase. It's no, no, no. We dare not say that the law is nullified. The law is fundamental even to Paul who was a Christian preacher. We don't ever want to say the law is nullified. It, it pointed to Christ, number one. But also the law reveals God's holy character who is God. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be pure and moral and perfect? Who is God and what is He like? The law shows that. The law also shows God's expectations and God's demands on us. Apart from the law, we would not know that we were sinners. Back in in verse 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If there's no law, then there's no standard of right and wrong that we see we all violate. The law reveals God's character. The law shows God's expectation. It also shows our need for grace. God says, be holy. Be perfect. Be pure. And we look at the law, and it's a a mirror to reflect who we are, and the law shows us we fall short. And the law is meant not to save us, it's meant to drive us to Christ. It's meant to to drive us to mercy and to seek God's grace. That's always been the intent of the law. No one was ever saved by keeping the law, even in the Old Testament. The law was there to show how we fall short and we need grace. And we trust that God somehow will make up the insufficiencies that we have it's always been by grace through faith and the moral law remains even Paul speaks about in his letters this sense of discontinuity between the old covenant and the new indeed all of the uh, ceremonial laws 
are no longer valid because Christ fulfilled them. No, no more need to butcher animals. Because Christ is once and for all the sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The, the Old Testament animals did not forgive sin. They pointed to the one who would, and it's Christ. And so there's a sense of discontinuity. The civil laws that were required for governing Old Testament Israel are not applicable to Gentiles. We live under different, under different laws and different civil codes. And Acts 15 says that that's okay. But what is still binding are the moral laws of God, the right and the wrong of God. In the New Testament, those things are repeated. Those commands carry over and are still binding. I don't know if you all read this recently, but Andy Stanley, a prominent Christian preacher today, recently said in one of his sermons that the, that the Ten Commandments quote, no longer apply to us. That somehow we are now under grace, we're now under the New Testament, we're now under this new code of ethics, and the Ten Commandments no longer apply to us. And Paul says, may it never be. To say somehow the Old Testament law is now nullified. And there are some that say, we don't even need to read the Old Testament. It doesn't matter. And Paul says, hogwash. May it never be. The law is fundamental to Christians not to save us, but to reveal God's expectations and then drive us to the cross. The law very much is still binding for those reasons. But also this, the law is fulfilled by Christ. The law is fulfilled by Christ. Paul says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. You know, that was the view of Jesus. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus said, I came to fulfill. All of the foreshadowing of the law, all of the predictions of the prophets, all of the expectations of the Messiah, Jesus didn't come to do away with all of that, to replace that with something else. He came to fulfill it. That's why we said the promises to Abraham, all of them have been fulfilled in Christ and will be fulfilled in Christ, and you must be in Christ to receive the promises of Abraham. You must be in Christ. Jew and Gentile, Paul says it doesn't matter. You've sinned against God. Everyone needs the cross. You must be in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. And through the preaching of Christ and the continued preaching of the law as the, as the driving force to drive us to the cross, Paul says, is establishing the law. But also, we said the moral laws of God are still binding, folks. God still expects and demands holiness of His people. This idea of cheap grace, of just saying, well, I just want to receive the gift of God, and, and, and I believe Jesus down across my sins. Now, I can just live ever how I want to live. And I'm saved. That's not the gospel. That's not biblical. 
Paul says we establish the law, we establish the moral code of God in Christianity. We're saved by grace and not by works. But Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are saved for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see, the law is fulfilled in Christ, but yet it's fundamental to us as Christians. We are called to then embrace the moral law of God and by His grace, the power comes via the Holy Spirit and our submission to Him, the power comes from the Holy Spirit to then try and submit ourselves and the Spirit enables us to submit ourselves to the moral law of God and God's demands. Perfect righteousness is demanded by God and Christ alone fulfilled that. But yet as a Christian, we are then called with the nature of Christ that's given to us, we are then called to live as those who have been saved. We are called not to conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we would be holy and, as Titus says, peculiar and unique in this world. The law is fulfilled by Christ. It's not abolished. It's not done away with. It's not nullified. Christ fulfilled it. And those who are in Christ, Jew, Gentile, in the body of Christ, are then the ones who receive the promises of the seed of Abraham. So what are we called to do? We're called to humbly trust in the saving promises of God in Christ Jesus and not trust in our own efforts. I did a Google search. I typed in the words, who gets the credit for? And when I did, several things popped up. Here's the first three things that popped up on that Google search. Who gets the credit for, number one, the economy? Second one, who gets the credit for low unemployment? Third thing that popped up, who gets the credit for low gas prices? And the church says amen. <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of debate about that. You know, who's responsible for the economy, whether it's up or down? Who's responsible for employment, whether it's up or down? Who's responsible for the gas prices? And, and whoever you ask, depending on their particular political persuasion, they'll offer an answer. And there's much debating who gets the credit for these things. One thing is not up for debate. Who gets the credit for your salvation? Paul says it's God. He says it's the Lord. Who gets the credit? Where then is boasting? It's not by the works of the law. It's by faith. We maintain a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Being justified, verse 24, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ. There is no debating who gets the credit, who gets the glory. God does. In Christ Jesus, through the power of the applicating work of the Holy Spirit, God gets the glory God alone gets the credits. And we are called then in humble faith then to trust in Him. Our humble reaction to His holy revelation. That's faith. Faith is our humble reaction to His 
holy revelation. God reveals Himself to us. God reveals what Christ has done in the cross of the gospel. We humbly react to that. Your response, admit your need and accept His gift. Let's pray. Almighty God, we 